Amen. Good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor. Hey, I want to echo what uh, Kyle was saying. Um, this Christmas offering thing we've been doing for years, it doesn't surprise me anymore, but your generosity still just amazes me. And I, I have learned so much. Every time I give to this church, I think about this. There are uh, like the list of reasons to not be generous, like is really long right? I don't know if you ever feel that. Like, there's a lot more things on that list. But what I've learned from just being around you people is that to trust God, to value His kingdom more than I value my own, and, and to, out of gratitude and generosity, give to the things that He cares about. It, it has shaped me. Your generosity has shaped me. So just as one of your pastors, let me just say thank you for that. It, it teaches us so much as leaders, um, and I'm, I'm always amazed and, and blown away by it. So Thank you for that. Um, uh, if you were here last week, you know we started a series. Thomas started a series in the book of Hebrews, uh, which is a fascinating book in the New Testament. If you want to turn to chapter 2, that's where we're going to be today. And uh, we're looking at Hebrews, but we're also looking at what we call our seven most helpful truths in talking about these core truths that we need to believe and stay focused on. And we're in this series really for one very simple reason. Humans drift. We do. That's true of us. We drift. We, we believe something, and then it's like we forget we believe it, and we drift. And that's just the nature of what it means to be human. And I don't know if you've noticed this. This is true of my spiritual life. It's true of every spiritual person I know is the spiritual life is constantly about returning. It's constantly about re-anchoring yourself in truths that you believed once and maybe you forgot you believed or you just they were out of your mind, and you got to re-anchor yourselves to them again because we drift. That's one of the reasons why I like to start every sermon I do with just this statement, that the truest and the most important thing about you is that you are created in the image of God, you are an image bearer of God, and you are deeply loved by Him, and nothing you could ever do would ever change those truths. And I do that because I bet you're like me, and I bet you have days where it's like, I didn't think about that once. I didn't think about the fact that God loves me or has uh, put his image within me. I, I just, just never cropped into my mind. Or you may have days like me where you doubt that and where it's like, yeah, I think that's true, but it doesn't feel true today. And so one of the things that we do when we drift is we just return and we re-anchor ourselves in those truths. That is what the author of Hebrews is doing throughout this book. That's something that we believe is our identity, is a church, something we want to do. Um, Hebrews in particular, he's writing to people who had believed in Jesus, but then they were drifting back to some of these old religious ways of being. And he's writing to them to say, no, 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 stay connected and anchored in what you heard from Jesus, that Jesus is better and the way of Jesus is better. In fact, if you're in Hebrews 2, you can look at chapter or verse 1 of Hebrews 2, and he addresses this. He says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. He says, listen, I, it's easy. We just, we naturally drift. That's why we have to pay the most careful attention 
to those core things that we've heard. We put these kind of together as the seven most helpful truths here at Pulpit Rock, and we have a little uh, diagram for them. There it is. Um, now, there's nothing magic about those words, but they, they, we've just noticed this, that people who journey with God in healthy ways for a lifetime, they find that those qualities and those concepts are a part of their life. And uh, that you see those all over the Bible. Those words are connected to biblical concepts, and they're all over the book of Hebrews. Um, and I love what the author of Hebrews says, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard. And just some of these core concepts, we have to keep bringing our attention to them so we don't drift away. Now today, uh, we want to talk about identity up there in the upper left-hand corner. Oh, it's gone. Oh, there it is. Um, because uh, the, the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, that's what this whole chapter is about. It's about who you are and how you see yourself and more specifically how God sees you. And it's one of those truths that if we can start to believe what God believes about us, it tends to change everything in our lives. And that's identity. Look at what he says right away. Verse 5, skip down a few verses. The author says, it's not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. So he's setting up this chapter. He's saying, listen, a lot of people are interested in angels. That's not who I'm talking about. He goes on, but there's a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. So here's what he's talking about in this chapter. He is talking about the way that God views us, and it starts with just this simple idea about the mindfulness of God. That God is mindful of humans. And, and the author says, hey, we hold this special place in God's heart that even angels don't hold. Which is astounding, I think, because when you think about uh, angels, like, I, like, you know, they're big and shiny, um, and they have wings, because like the bell, when the bells ring, you know, it's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Um, they have great singing voices, and like, they're like, they're pretty dramatic, like, impressive beings, right? And the author's saying, listen, God thinks of you, and you hold this special place in his heart that even angels don't hold. Like, you unshiny, uh, wingless, uh, mediocre singing voice, you. That's not fair. Some of you sing really well, but not compared probably to angels, right? Yet God thinks of you in ways, and you hold a place in his heart and in his mind that even the angels themselves do not hold. That's astounding. And what he's going to say in this chapter, I think, is one of those truths that's a little bit mind-boggling to think about, and it's truly, it, it's super inhuman, like what he's going to describe here. It's just not the way that we as humans think and operate, and that's why we have to pause and just wrap our minds around this identity that God has given us. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into some stuff about this identity that we have. Lord, um, I'm struck, Lord, that just in this room, we think a lot of things about ourselves. Some of them good, some of them bad. But what we believe, God, is that you think things about us. And we want to prioritize those even more so than the stuff that we might say. So open our hearts and our minds to receive what you say about us. 
and begin to reshape our lives around that identity. Free us from some of those things we believe about ourselves and lead us to those truths that you want us to be anchored in. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we're going to get back into Hebrews 2, but before we do that, I want to talk about this woman just briefly. Um, do you all know who that is? I asked the first service, and like everyone was like, Jane Goodall. And then I was like, oh, it's written on the picture. <laughs> so before you saw that on the picture, did you know who that woman was, Jane Goodall? Okay, all right. So uh, you may know that she spent years studying chimpanzees in Tanzania. Um, and she would always say this, like when people would ask, hey, what are chimpanzees like? She would say this, that generally chimpanzees are a lot like humans, except they're rather nicer in their behavior, behavior than humans. And uh, that was kind of her, her common comeback to people who would ask about that. Now, that was something that she believed until 1974. Something happened in 1974 that shook her. In January of that year, she was studying this uh, community, this family of chimpanzees, and overnight, seemingly, this community split into two groups, a northern group and a southern group. And it was, there was no reason, there was no uh, cause for it that she could determine. They just kind of split overnight into these two groups. And on January 7th of 1974, six male chimpanzees from the northern group came across a young chimp from the now southern group, where just a few days earlier, they're one family, now they're in these two groups, and these six males come across this young chimp from the southern group, um, and they killed him. Without provocation, they attacked him, and they killed him simply because he wasn't from their group. Now, that started uh, four years of brutal violence between chimpanzees. I mean, humans can be awful to each other, but chimps, they're animals, and it, they just horrible, horrific things that she recorded. It actually has a name, the Gom Chimpanzee War, the four-year war of Gom uh, in Tam Tanzania. And it was so awful to her uh, that at first she kind of, she just didn't report it. Like she just covered it up because it, like they were doing horrible things for four years. And then when she finally did come out with it and told people, hey, here's what happened, at first nobody believed her because there was no reason for this community to have split into these two separate groups. And it, it just made no sense from the outside looking in. Now, why am I bringing this up? The Bible's clear that we as humans, we are not animals, right? And Hebrews is talking about angels and he's saying, no, well, I'm not talking about those. So clearly we're not angels and we're not animals, we're this unique thing in between, and the Bible says that we hold this unique place in all of creation and in the heart and in the mind of God. But we also know this, sin has entered the world, and it's a part of all of us. And so despite the fact that we are not animals, sometimes we can act and behave as if we are animals. We can be animalistic in the ways that we relate to one another. And this behavior that Jane Goodall observed in chimpanzees. It's something you see all over the animal world, this idea of uh, clan and defending territory and all that stuff. I bet you could maybe see some examples of that within us as humans, right? Uh, it's something that we have adopted from the animal world. And it's, uh, we kind of have a fancy name for it. It's called tribalism. Um, it's simply uh, embracing a simple dichotomy of there's an us and there's a them. And we start to think this way about everything. Um, and what these chimps did, from the outside you look at it and you're like, well, why did you just suddenly divide 
and now there's an us and a them, and it makes no sense. But I bet if we could somehow extract ourselves from the human race, right? Not that we could, but if we could, and we could truly become a non-biased observer with no allegiance to any human group, I bet we'd look at a lot of the conflicts that human ha- humans have with the same sort of like just bewilderment. Like you all are the, you're the same. Why are you fighting? Well, because we've adopted some things from the animal world. And without any effort or awareness, we humans, we tend to group the world into these two camps. There is an us and there is a them. And it, it's hardwired kind of in our brain. Um, think about what makes up your us, like what you would identify as this is us, right? It's, your, it's all the things that are a part of your communal identity. So it could be stuff like your home state. Anyone from Texas? That's right. Y'all are the worst. It's like a... a there are Texans and there's everyone else, right? Um, <laughs> I say that as a Coloradan, right? <laughs> it's your hometown, your alma mater, your nation, your ethnicity, your gender, your political party, your religion, your denomination, your church, your family, your neighborhood, your sports team. It's all the things that you would identify as an us. I could go on forever. We're constantly dividing the world in this way. And for virtually everything that's a part of your us... There is a corresponding and opposite them. For example, I am a Broncos fan. We are the Broncos. That's who we are. And if you're a Broncos fan, if you're one of us, then you hate the... (laughs) What I have written down here is Patriots, but all of your answers are good. You all get credit, because I'm with you. I hate all those other teams, right? So there's us, the Broncos, and then there's them, all of those teams you just shouted out. We have all these different parts of our identity where that, that dichotomy exists, and it takes no effort. Like, sometimes it just happens, and we don't even mean for it to happen. Um, recently, I was, uh, I was flying to Thailand to do some undercover work with the Exodus Road, um, and the first stretch of that trip is uh, from Denver to Tokyo. Um, so I'm flying from Denver to Tokyo. It's about a 12-hour flight. Um, we're four hours into this 12-hour flight, so we're up somewhere over Alaska, and the co-pilot comes on the speaker, and he says, hey. That's, he didn't say hey. He said, you know, whatever the <laughs> co-pilots say. Um, he says, we have to turn around and go back to San Francisco because the cockpit windshield has shattered. I know. I <laughs> I had the same questions you have. How are we even in the air still? Apparently, there's two windshields in the cockpit. There's the outer one, the inner one. The outer one had shattered, and they're like, we don't want to risk it with the inner one because we still have a, a long way to go. So we have to go back to San Francisco. we got to wait around for a new plane, then they're going to get us on the new plane. We're going to fly now 10 hours to Tokyo, only to be put up in a hotel because all of us had missed our flight. Um, so I, I don't know if I've ever felt more instant connection uh, and community with a group of humans than I did in that moment. Um, There was instantly an us and a them. And it's not like anyone like organized it or whatever. Like we just instantly we formed. There was us passengers, right? Us who almost died apparently in this plane. Us who now had to figure out where, well, how do I get to my destination and all that stuff. And then there was a them, the United Airline Corporation, <laughs> right? 
And we would have huddled conversations, us would, and we would talk about them, and we would be like, did they tell you anything? Did they say when our plane's going to get here? Did they tell you what happened? How does a windshield shatter? That doesn't, did someone make a mistake? And we'd have all these conversations about them. But it wasn't just antagonistic. It was also like it was real community. I mean, total strangers would look at each other and they'd be like, we're, we're going to get through this. Are you, is that your family on the phone? Say hello to your family for me. It's like, I've never met you before. But we just had this bond. It was us and it was them and it was amazing. And this happens over and over again. And it's, it's usually arbitrary, just like those chimpanzees. We just split the world into these two groups. And it, like, it's impossible to imagine a, like a world where we didn't do that. It is just natural to care more about us than we do about them. And that doesn't mean that we want bad things to happen to them. It just means we notice that them is not us. Sometimes that's bad, right? Us versus them has been the source of tremendous evil in the world. It is this like rhetorical device that's been used uh, to justify countless atrocities throughout history, right? We know that. But you also know this, us versus them has been a source of good. And there are countless stories where someone has sacrificed enormous things, even their life, for the love of their community, for the love of us. My point is just this. You see how that's so much a part of us as humans. This is just how we think, right? Tribalism, us versus them. It is pervasive. Have I convinced you of that? Because knowing that, now we can begin to understand what this author of Hebrews is going to say Jesus did. And it is the most inhuman thing you've ever heard. Listen to this. Verse 8. It's picking up where we left off in the middle of verse 8, I think. Uh, It says, and putting everything under them, that's us as humans, God left nothing that's not subject to them, yet at present we don't see everything subject to them. So he's just saying this, God created us to rule over the world, but at present that's not exactly how it works, and so in some ways we're even subject to the world and we wind up acting like it. So we're out there acting like chimpanzees, inventing reasons for our next war. That's not how it was supposed to be, but that's what it is. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So think of what he's saying, uh, this author saying this way, God is the ultimate us, right? When you think about us, them, it's like God is the ultimate us, and humans, mankind, we are the ultimate them. We have fallen from glory, and there was this animosity, there was this rift between our two tribes, and in response to that, God, in the form of Jesus, said, I will become them, and not just become like them, but I will become them in every way, even experiencing death. This is Christmas. This is the incarnation. Us became them. God became flesh. I, no human would have ever dreamed that up, right? As the solution between the us-them dichotomy. No human would have thought that way. That's just not how we navigate it. But that the holy, all-powerful God would look at them, sinfully broken just the tragic human race, and say, I, I'll be them. 
in every way. It's the most unnatural and I think the most inhuman decision that could be made. It gets better though. Look at verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. So not only did us become them, but God also looks at mankind, at you and I, and he declares through Christ because Jesus did that, that we are now his family, that we are brothers and sisters of Christ, that our standing is we're beloved sons and daughters of God. We used to be like outside of his family, but he became one of us and he died and now he's made us holy and we're inside of his family. So not only did us become them, but us made them one of us, which is a sentence that makes sense, I promise. He took them and he made them one of him, one of us. And that is the reality of our identity. We were on the outside. We weren't a part of God's tribe. And God decided to come join our tribe, to be fully one of us on the outside so that he could bring us into his tribe. And if we have Christ, we're no longer one of them. What we are always, and we are only the beloved children of God. We are part of God's us in the same way that Jesus is, that he ushered us into that. That's our identity. Now, here's the best part of all of this. Why did he do that? Look at verse 14. Why did he become one of us so that he could make us one of uh, his family? Verse 14, since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He became that, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So first, he brought us into this family so that he could free us from this slavery of fear, especially to death. But then, verse 16, for surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that's us. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So he became like us to free us from the fear. He became like us to make us a part of his family so that he could help us with the sin, with the brokenness, with the temptation. You know, that's one of the reasons that we get so fired up here at Pulpit Rock, because it really, like, it is an anti-Christ statement when religious people say to us that God is so angry at you because of your sin. Shame on you. God's so furious with your sin. Hey, I, I've read those verses, too, about the wrath of God. I, those are in the Bible, and if you rip them out of the Bible, maybe you can prove that to somebody. But if you leave them in the Bible and consider the whole Bible, what it teaches is this, that God's wrath was satisfied by Jesus, that God was angry, and he took care of his own anger because our attempts at being good never could, and so we don't ever have to. He took care of it himself. Jesus became one of us, died for our sins, satisfied God's anger so that he could understand our temptations and help us. Hebrews leaves no doubt that when God looks at you in your sin, 
that his posture is always kind of this, like arm around, brother, sister. Hey, I, I, know, I know what that's like. I know that temptation. When you're ready, let's work on it together. That is the posture of Jesus in our sin. We don't have to deal with God's anger because God dealt with his own anger. And he claimed us as his family. That to me, it, it's the most astonishing inhuman thing. It's not like in that us-them paradox, it's not like them never did anything to God. We absolutely did. And in the face of that, he said, well, I'll be just like them and then I'll make them just like me. I'll make them my own children. That's what you are. Let's, I want to connect this to our lives and specifically uh, some of the stuff that he says about the reasons why. By, uh, let me introduce you to my little tribe here. There, there they are. Hey, um, that is my us, right? I like to act all altruistic like I love all people. I do. I love all people, most people. Um, <laughs> if I'm honest, I love these four people more than the rest of you. Um, I mean, I love you, but it's, yeah. This is true. I love these four people in such a way that, like, if you mistreat any of these four people, um, like, if you're unkind to them or hurt their feelings, I don't care how much we agree on in life, we've got a problem, right? We could, you could be a Broncos fan. I, we've got a problem if you mistreat these people, right? But the reverse is true. Like, if you love one of these people, like if you encourage them, if you root for them, if you help, for them, help them and care for them, then I don't care how much we disagree on, I kind of like you. Like you could even be a Patriots fan. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you're, you're good people, you know, because you love these people. They're my tribe. Uh, they, like I, I care about them. And I'm not, I don't want to compare my love for my family to God's love for his family. I'm so you know, flawed and broken. God's love is perfect and it's powerful. And I, I just want to stick to this family metaphor for a second and consider what the author of Hebrews says about how we are free from fear because we're the children of God and we have help from God because we are his children. One of the things I think about a lot with my little tribe up there um, is I want them to know they're loved, right? As a father, I, I want them to know they're loved. I want them to have security in that. Um, and I look at them, and like they're all like they're all like very capable and very talented. They have a lot of stuff they do well. But man, it would break my heart if they felt like the only reason that my dad loves me is because I do this stuff. I want them to know that they're loved, regardless of anything they do. And I don't want them to like fear that they could do something that all of a sudden my love would be snatched away. I want their experience of love in my family to be something that they're secure in, something that they enjoy, something that they, they never feel like I've got to earn it, right? Not only that, I, I look at these, uh, this crew up there and like I'm always thinking about what they need um, just as a dad. I think that's part of your role as a parent, obviously. And um, I'm thinking about how they're wired and what makes them feel loved and just who God created them to be. I, I was talking to my son, Grant, he's the middle one up there, um, about love languages. You know what love languages are? There's like five love languages. And he said this to me. I thought this was hilarious. He said, uh, why would anyone want touch to be their love language when you could have people buy you gifts? <laughs> Mental notes. 
I'm not the smartest guy, but I think I'm close to understanding what his love language might be. <laughs> I'm always thinking about that stuff with him. Like, what do they need? And, I, and this is new for me, but I'm thinking not just about what they need, or not just about what they want, but what do they really need. As I've gotten older, I've realized this, that uh, some of the ways that I might help try to give them what they need can actually wind up hurting them long-term. I, I, want, I want to help them, but I also want the, those boys to grow to be competent and uh, adults who are uh, living for God and all that sort of stuff. And I realize that I can sometimes help them in ways that are counterproductive to that end of them growing up. I'll give you a short example. Um, in my family, out of those five, uh, for some reason God created it this way, I am the only person who is ever able to find anything, ever. Um, does anyone else have that burden in your household that you're, okay. Yeah, we're starting a support group later. Um, <laughs> keys, wallets, cell phones, cell phone chargers, shoes. How do you lose one shoe? It happens. <laughs> 20 times a day, I am finding stuff. And it, it always is the, the same. Uh, they, they, they come to me and they're like, somebody stole my wallet. Nobody's stolen anything in our family, but that's always the go-to. I can't find my wallet. It's stolen, right? And a couple of years ago, I started realizing this is unsustainable. Um, <laughs> because I, like if, my, if next time my United flight goes down, right, in the course of about two weeks, every possession the Cleveland family has will be lost. <laughs> if I do die unexpectedly, if a few of you could stop by my house and just find stuff, be helpful. Um, so, I've, so I've changed kind of my approach. So like, hey, I, my wallet, it's, it's been stolen. I, I always start with this question. Can you picture yourself the last time you had it? Like, wh where were you when you last remember actually, like for sure I had my wallet then? And I make them go look there. And often that's not the place it is. And so I say, well, listen, I, I want, before I get up and look, can you check in multiple places? Can you look in your room? Can you look in the basement? Can you look in the car? Those are the places that things go and they're just gone for good. So the room, the basement, and the car. And after they've done that, then I will get up and I will inevitably find whatever it is that they've lost. Um, but you see how it works. Like I'm still really eager to help these people, but I've started to shift and ask some questions, not just about what do they ask for, but what do they actually need to be who they want to be because I want them to grow. Now, those are just a few things I think about when it comes to my us, my family. I want them to be secure in, in my love for them. I, I don't want them to fear that. I want to help them, but not just with what they ask for, but really what they need. Now, if that is how a flawed, imperfect, sinful father loves his family, if that is how a slightly above average dad <laughs> loves his family, I mean, can you imagine how much more so the all-powerful, all-holy God loves you, his beloved son or daughter? That's what it means to be an us with God. The author of Hebrews says he declares us as brothers and sisters of Jesus so that we'd no longer be afraid, so we'd have security instead of fear. See, the children of God need never fear losing his love. The children of God need never fear the anger of God. The children of God need never fear death. 
And then the author says that he declares us his children so that he can help us in our struggles. That the children of God do not get everything they want or ask for. He would be a bad father if that's true. But I'm convinced of this. The children of God get what they need from their father. And sometimes that is just like total abundant grace and he finds the wallet. And sometimes he stretches us a little bit and he asks something from us. But it's always this father with arm around our shoulders, eager to give us the help that we need, the right type of help. That's what it means to have an identity as a child of God. He's claimed you as his permanently, unalterably. And I know we drift from that. We let fear win out. We forget the security that we have. We, we take our identity and instead of keeping it attached to God as one of his children, we attach it to stuff like our job or like a relationship or like our, our politics or stuff like that. Like the, the people in Hebrews, they were attaching it to religious customs. And we drift. We drift from this truth. We struggle to believe it sometimes. You know, it's, it's almost like, a, like an adopted child struggles to accept and attach to the love of his parents. We as humans drift. Here's what I want you to hear uh, today, that your identity, this identity as a beloved child of God, is not like a concept to apply. I'm not going to give you like three things to go do. It is a reality to accept. And when you find yourself drifting from it, as you inevitably will, as we all do, it's a reality to re-accept to re-anchor yourself on, to, to constantly wrestle your identity away from those lesser things and fix it on these things that God declares of us as the beloved children of God. Here's what I want you to trust. As, as we've been talking about the series, this is absolutely true. That in this faith community pulpit, that we call Pulpit Rock Church, we are going to remind you of who you are. That We're going to do that a lot. And you might get sick of hearing it, um, but, but we think it's that important because we know how easy it is to drift, how hard it is to attach to this identity. And we're going to remind you again and again that you are always and only the beloved child of God. And here's the thing, we need you to remind us too. It goes both ways. If you're drifting today, drifting from that, hear me, but more importantly, hear what this author is saying in Hebrews Pay the most careful attention to this truth. You are secure in God's love. You are secure in God's love. You have his help. You are, in fact, a brother or a sister of Jesus. That's such an arresting phrase to me. You are a brother or a sister of Jesus. Through Christ, God has claimed you as his. his. Us became them, and then us claimed them as one of us. You have nothing left to earn. You have nothing to fear. Nothing you could ever lose. You have his help for what you need. Beloved child of God, that is your identity. Pray with me. Lord, this is hard to accept. It's hard to even fathom. It's easy to doubt. It's easy to forget. God, I pray that we would be an anchored people. I pray that we would recognize when we're drifting, when we're acting as if we aren't secure in your love, when we're acting as if we can't trust you to help. 
And I pray that again and again you would drag us back to this foundation that we are loved, that we are yours. Thank you for claiming us, Lord, when you had no reason to, when you had every reason not to. You became us and you claimed us and we're grateful. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.